So in, uh, in high school, um, in my French class, we were trying uh, French delicacies, and I don't know if it's truly a French delicacy, but I, I tried a, a chocolate-covered grasshopper. Have any of you ever tried one of those? It tastes exactly like it sounds, like a chocolate-covered grasshopper. So I was just thinking, like, if I would have been John the Baptist, it would have been a voice didn't cry out in the wilderness <laughs> because he died of starvation. So... Um, I, I want to look back to the end of Matthew chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, or feel free to look on your phone, um, Matthew chapter 2, because I think it's important to set the context for chapter 3, where John the Baptist enters. The, the, this picture at the end of chapter 2 is perhaps one of the most uh, horrific of news stories and one that's really unimaginable to the human psyche unless you've actually been through something like it. So King Herod, having been visited by three wise men from the east, is threatened by this news that, that comes to him that they come seeking the recently born king of the Jews. And if that's not enough that he's had three visitors you know, come from a foreign and distant land, he learns that they actually come following a star a celestial object in the sky that leads and guides him to Bethlehem. And in the darkness of his heart, Herod decides to have all male children, two years of age and younger, executed throughout Bethlehem and the surrounding region. State-ordered pedicide and gendercide. The grief of which echoes throughout the area in such a way that Matthew has to reach back into the prophetic witness of Jeremiah to even grab the words to describe the grief. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And then Matthew tells us that even though Herod dies, that Jesus life is actually still in danger because Herod's son ascends to the throne. And so he is a king, and yet he is a refugee king, right? He's moving from Bethlehem down to Egypt and then all the way through Judea up to Nazareth. And that's where our gospel text drops us this morning in Matthew chapter 3, where John the Baptist enters the scene, a man of prophetic witness, right? He's, so he's wearing this, this garb of camel's hair uh, with a leather belt. It's, it's a prophetic uh, sort of suit, prophetic garb, and he, he lives this sort of stark life of asceticism in the desert. And Matthew, again, quotes another prophet to talk about this moment, to talk about this moment with John. He reaches back in, into the words of Isaiah, and he says, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, there's a small detail here that I I think it's worth mentioning one of the, the keys or the helpful tools in reading and studying Scripture is to look for repetition. So if you see repetition, it often signals something of significance, something that you should really pay attention to, something the writer wanted to highlight for the readers or the hearers of it. And if you're looking closely at chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2 and 3 here, at these two quotations from prophets, you'll notice uh, something. I wonder if any of you notice. I gave it to 8 o'clock service because I think they were too sleepy to really get it. But all right, did any of you see anything repeated there? 
All right, I'll give it to you as well. It's, <laughs> it's the word voice. Do you see that? The word voice is repeated at the beginning of, of the quotation from Jeremiah, and then the word voice is repeated at the beginning of the, the quotation from Isaiah. Now, here's the interesting thing, that this word in Hebrew doesn't simply mean a person's voice, like an audible voice, their speaking voice. It's not just that. Actually, in Hebrew, it's used in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve have just uh, eaten the forbidden fruit and God is heard walking through the garden. This word is used to describe the sound of God walking through the garden. Uh, later in Genesis, when, when Cain kills his brother Abel, this, this first time we see murder occur in Scripture, when Cain kills Abel, it's used to describe the sound of Abel's blood crying from the ground to God. God actually says, what, what have you done uh, to Cain? He says, what have you done? The sound of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. When in Exodus, when Moses goes to Pharaoh and, and he says, you know, let my people go and, and Pharaoh hardens his heart, it refers to the sound that God makes in the skies, the thunderous sound that God makes as he rains hail down onto Pharaoh. And in Joshua, when the, the Israelites are, are circling the city walls with the Ark of the Covenant, right? And on the seventh day, they circle seven times and they sound the trumpets and the people shouting. It's used to talk about that sound when the walls came tumbling down. So it's a word that's used for our, our deepest pain in human existence, the deepest pain and longing and suffering and yet, on this other hand, is this word used for the voice of God. It's, it's, it's used for the sound that God makes when he moves, the, the thunder of his strength, the sound of his victory. Isn't that striking to you? It's, it's striking to me because when I read Matthews chapter 2 and 3, it's, it's out of the depths of this horrific massacre of little boys and the sounds of their mothers wailing weeping with agonizing grief and longing for justice, out of those depths comes this other sound, but it's one of a different tenor. It's an answer. It's the sound of the voice of hope. John the Baptist, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I think that the message for us today is that out of the, the chaos and the confusion and, and the grief-inducing things of the world and the noise and the sounds of those things. Uh, let me pause there and just say, when I was putting this, this sermon together, I was at this point kind of thinking to myself, I'm, I don't want to sound like a bummer. You know, it's, it, we're approaching Christmas and everybody's kind of joyful and happy. I don't, and, then, and then I read the news. Every day we're, we're bombarded with this stuff. And it's happening in our world, these things that grate on our hearts and that, that pull our hearts out of our chest and we just can't believe that this is the world that we live in sometimes. Out of that, though, comes the sound of salvation, of healing, of restoration, of the things that are to come. And the message for us today is to get ready for that, to prepare the way of the Lord, to clear out the clutter in our lives that blocks 
our way to him and his way to us. And Advent is really just this beautiful season of preparation. Yes, we, we look back to his birth, but we look back so that we can consider how we might best prepare now for Christ who is to come again into our broken and hurting world. We say this every single week, don't we? Christ has, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will... And it isn't so much this picture of like, you know, we've got to clean this mess up before dad gets home. <laughs> but it's more about how we're posturing our hearts and our willingness to examine our lives and to be honest, to just be truly honest about our brokenness and our need for a Savior. So my wife, Lynn, and, and my kids uh, have... It, they enjoy calling me a Grinch at this point because I don't really enjoy decorating for Christmas um, or for any holiday for that matter. It, it just doesn't put me in the spirit. I'm like, things go up, have to come down, and I just don't want to do either, either one. But I, I do, in fact, let it be known, I enjoy this time of year. I, I love the atmosphere. I, I, I love the music. And, but I often worry. I worry for all of us, that we've fallen in, into this temptation to spend more energy, um, more time, more resources, more of ourselves pouring into preparing for a day on the calendar than for the eternal life to come, spending more time putting literal bows on presents than, than asking and allowing God to come and wrap our hearts up in His healing. I'm afraid that we've become too busy to attend to this business of repentance and preparing the way for Christ to come again. See, the thing is, is that we can't attune to the cries of Rachel, so to speak. We can't, we can't attune to those deep cries of our own hearts, those cries that, that tell of the losses that we've experienced and, and the pain that we feel. We can't do that without taking the time to stop and acknowledge that there's brokenness within us, that there's brokenness in this world and around us, while also at the same time listening in the quiet for the cry, the one of hope to speak back to us. Uh, the Catholic writer Ronald Rollheiser says this, he said, we, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It's not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We, we would like these. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall. I think he wrote this prior to, to Amazon. And the shopping mall and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are interested in the church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. And so the question for us to consider today, I think, is, is this, is, is the pathway open and clutter-free and available for Christ to enter into my life and change my heart and make me new? Is, it, is, it, is the, the path straight? And before you accuse me of, of works-based righteousness, I do need to say that mystery of mysteries, that this, this is a work that he actually has to do in us. We can't do this on our own. 
So preparing the way for the Lord is really this work of opening ourselves up to his work combined with the willingness to obey. It's in our, it's in our coming to him, broken as we are, pained as we are, busy as we are and distracted as we are to say, God, by your grace, I just need help. I need change. In the voyage of the Dawn Treader, you weren't going to get away without a Narnia quote. Um, this, this character, I've talked about him before, I think, this mean-spirited little boy, Eustace. He, he literally turns into a dragon in the book, right? So his exterior, what he turns into, mimics his interior, what was inside of him. And so later in the book, when he goes to be healed by the Christ figure in the, in the series, Aslan, the lion, Aslan rips with lion claws into his dragon skin. It's kind of a, a violent scene almost where he rips into the dragon skin to tear it off Eustace. And it's incredibly painful. But Eustace says this, he says, it hurt like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. I found that all the pain had gone. And then I saw why I turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me and dressed me in new clothes. From the prophet Ezekiel, we read the same thing about God's desire to restore the Israelites back to their home. And he says this to them. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away. You will no longer worship idols and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey. Friends, all of creation is crying out. And many of you I know are crying out from loss and pain and longing for things that once were but never will be again, for things that maybe have not yet come to be in your life that you had hoped for. And it seems as though those cries are often aimed into this abyss where they just sort of dissipate into thin air, never to be heard by anyone. But I'm here to tell you and that the saints of the ages are telling you that you are heard because another voice cries out, and it's not from atop a throne, it's not from this majestic place of privilege, but it's actually from there in the wilderness too. He is with you, and he's crying out to you that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning, he is bringing here the goodness of heaven with him into our hearts and into our lives. But are you willing... Are we willing to let him do this work of giving you a new heart? Or are you too afraid? Or are you too busy and distracted? Now, I can't, I can't call to attention everything that everyone in here is, in this room is struggling with, that's cluttering this pathway to Christ, but the Spirit can. And I, I've found that if I'm intentional in seeking the answer to that question for myself, that he will often bring those things to my attention and even some of those things that were well into the periphery that I, I wasn't focused on. And, and, and that happens through prayer. And so as, as I close, I want to encourage you 
to, to re-up on this discipline of prayer during this season of Advent. One of the things I, I love about our Anglican tradition is our prayer book, because it, it shapes and defines who we are as God's children. And, and this common critique I've heard um, is that, and I actually heard it this past weekend from a friend, it's like, they don't want to read or say the prayers that are just made up by someone else. It doesn't feel authentic. And I, I get that, right? But my answer to that has always been, well, would you rather read and pray Scripture? And you just say yes. And like, well, that's what our prayers are. They're Scripture. Our prayers that we have in our prayer book are bathed in Scripture. They're straight from Scripture. And what's more is, is that through them, we pray what we believe and we believe what we pray. We are strengthened by our prayers. And within our prayer book, in the very beginning pages, is something called the daily office. Some of you might even use the daily office, but it's daily morning prayer, midday prayer, evening prayer, and compliment. Now, you're not expected to do all four, okay? But, the, but what the daily office is is a narrowing down of the fixed hours of prayer, and, and that narrowing is intentional so that in the busyness of life, we can at least attend to one of them in daily prayer. There's even a shortened version of this. It's called Family Prayer. It's in page 67 in your, your Book of Common Prayer, but... I, I, I will say that as a fairly new Anglican myself, that I admit it can be confusing and daunting to open that book up and try to, try to follow it. There are rubrics to follow. There's things that only a priest is supposed to say. There's you know, parts to omit during certain seasons. There's this lectionary that we have to follow. It's totally understandable if you just you open it up and you're like, nope, and you close the book and go about your business. But I want to offer you some advice before you give up. And remember that this isn't about piling up good works. It's, not, um, it, it's about making the pathway straight. It, it, it's decluttering our lives to let God come and do the work that he said that he would do in Ezekiel, that it's to put a new heart and a, a new spirit in us. My advice is to find one quiet moment in your day, one quiet moment. Maybe it's um, morning coffee. Maybe it's the morning commute. Which don't read in your morning, but there there are podcasts that read to you, you know the Daily Office. Um, it could be before or after lunch. It could be that mid afternoon slump where, let's be honest, work isn't really getting done; just looks like it. And you could, you know, use that time to pray. Or maybe it's uh, late in the evening after kids go to bed. Whatever it is, I, I, everyone has time for this. Um, I won't hear you say you don't have time. Find it during your day. Open up this prayer that we share together and do what you can. If you only have a few minutes, that's okay. Just do what you can. And here's the thing. Then when, when you're done or when you run out of time, ask God in his grace to fill in the rest. I kind of imagine like if I only make it through half of morning prayer and then I'm interrupted or something happens, that God in his grace continues to pray the rest for me. And you do too. So this Advent and Christmas season, I encourage you to commit to it. And, and I don't say any of this as this weird kind of plug for Anglicanism. I say it because it's made a difference in my life. Prayer has changed my life. 
It has decluttered the pathway to Christ and his to me. And, and it, it's, it's worth more than the thing itself, meaning prayer isn't the end goal. I don't, I don't think at the end of, of all that, that God will be giving us a grade on how well we prayed or how fervent we prayed or how often we prayed. What, the end goal is that we would pray and prepare for him to enter into our world and into our lives and make all things new. The end goal is that he would come into the wilderness of creation and that he would, with a hand reaching toward Rachel's face, weeping, crying for her children who are no more, crying for the injustices that we face and the things that are wrong in this world that he would reach with a hand those cries that we share with her and that he would wipe away every tear. In the words of the Apostle Paul that we heard read this morning, may the God of hope give us all joy and peace in believing these things so that by the power of the Spirit we might abound in his hope. Amen? Amen. Amen.